Hello there, and welcome along to episode 10 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips or news chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. And this episode is about See the Stars, and I am delighted to say that it is sponsored by Equied. Equied supply racehorse-specific accredited courses and is Ireland's only dedicated racehorse retirement and rehoming centre. Down there, they've got some great horses like Central House, a horse I'd like to make an episode about one day, as well as Riven Light and Thomas Hobson from recent times and many others. They're down there living the absolute life in their retirement in Equiet. So they're well worth a follow on social media. I've left all their links in the show notes, so please do go on and give them a follow. It'll be supporting me too. And I am absolutely delighted to have them on board for this episode. I struggle to think of a more perfect fit for this show. Um, So now... I'll just tell you, when I first tried getting in touch with John Ox to ask if he'd be willing to give me an interview about See the Stars, I fired off an email in hope, um, and then literally about two days later he announced his retirement. And obviously he gets inundated with media requests and everything, so I thought, well, my request is just going to be lost. I'll never hear back. Gave up. And then about six weeks later, he replies, apologising for the delayed response, but things got a bit hectic. So, uh... What an incredibly nice man. <laughs> what a gentleman. Uh, so it worked out and we had a great chat about the incredible horse that was See the Stars. And after that, you're going to hear a brief conversation between myself and the wonderful Jim McGrath about his commentary on the horse's Arc de Triomphe victory, which is probably my favourite race commentary of all time. So without further ado, please enjoy hearing all about the brilliant See the Stars. So, John, first off, um, could you start off by telling us a little bit about See the Stars' breeding and then how he ended up in your yard? Well, his breeding, first of all, uh, he was by Cape Cross um, uh, out of Urban Sea. Uh, so his owner bred, bred him. And, um, of course, he's a half-brother to Galileo. And um, Urban Sea was about uh, 16 or so at that time, and she bred a whole, whole host of good horses. She was a terrific broodmare. So he was one of our later fours. He was in our second last foal, in fact. Um, he was a beautiful looking horse. So there were high hopes for him. Um, and uh, luckily, uh, the owners didn't didn't sell him as a yearling. They could have sold him for a big price, I'm sure, and um, kept him instead. We I'd had some horses for them for some years. And uh, uh, I suppose, I don't know what, I'd have had three or four horses for them. I had one nice video on a listed race, or a group later, a group three, Fairy Bridge Stakes at Tipperary. So, um, you know, we'd been doing okay for them. And uh, they decided to keep this horse. I actually had a year a year older brother uh, who never raced by Green Desert. I had him at the time, and uh, he had various problems and never made it to the racetrack. So I was a bit surprised they kept him uh, rather than selling him. He would have made, you know, the leading price of the year had they put him up for auction, obviously. But anyway, it was my lucky day and their lucky day, I suppose, when they, when they decided to keep him rather than sell him. Absolutely. So you mentioned he's a beautiful looking horse. So tell us a bit more about what he's like, his looks and his, his personality, if you could. Well, he was, of course, beautiful looking horse, beautiful yearling, uh, terrific proportions, uh, well grown. He was, you know, above average height, uh, just really well put together. Great, great conformation, great limbs and really nice temperament. He was very quiet horse, very sensible horse, uh, perfectly the perfect yearling to break. He was very calm quick learner he knew seemed to know everything everything he was asked being asked to do he seemed to be able to do it comfortably uh and didn't need any education you know he, he was clever and um a beautiful quiet horse uh, as a as a yearling and his during the winter and into the spring of his two-year-old year you know he was he was uh, very sensible forward going you know perfect perfect individual uh, i've had several people <laughs> who worked for me at the time have come to me since then and say oh i rode see the stars you know i remember riding see the stars 
because you could, uh, and they were all, of course, good riders, uh, not criticizing their ability to ride, but uh, there were several different people uh, had the privilege of riding him as while well, he was a two-year-old. Um, and um, But later on, then, he became more energetic, and you had to be very careful. Uh, uh, there, were, there were just a couple of people rode him subsequently, but um, but at that time, anyway, lots of people had the pleasure of having a spin on See the Stars uh, because uh, you didn't have to worry about several people would be well capable of it, you know. Mm. So. I believe um, one of those people, Michael Canan, you brought him in to ride the horse in May of his two-year-old season, which I believe was quite unusual for you at the time. So maybe you knew then he was a bit special. Uh, well, well, he would ride. You know, if I had two-year-olds running at that time, he'd he he he'd, he'd ride them. But uh, yes, we weren't going to run them in May, so I suppose I did put him up on them early enough, because I knew he'd 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 want to ride a half brother to Galileo, um, and I was interested, obviously, to get his opinion of the horse uh, pretty early on. So uh, yeah, so uh, he he rode him. Uh, he wrote him in all his work himself for Fran Berry, who was uh, with me at the time also. He he, he, he got to write him uh, occasionally as well. But uh, uh, Mick, Mick uh, wrote him most bits of work from there on. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, it was nice. Yeah. And he, he gave him a good impression. Of course, he was he was happy with uh, the, the feel he got from him. So uh, uh, it was... Uh, it was nice to have his opinion early on. Okay, great. And then on to July then of that year, 2008, he makes his debut in a Curra Maiden. Um, he's only fourth, but he had a lot of trouble in running. And I believe you, you didn't really, you don't really mind them getting beaten on debut. No, uh, the main thing is to give a horse a nice experience. Michael, uh, as he got older, uh, you know, he, he he used to have this expression, we, we want to give him a nice taste in his mouth, leave him with a nice taste in his mouth after the race. That was his expression always when he'd be going out to ride a two-year-old first time out, you know, we leave him with a nice taste in his mouth after the race. And he'd always say that to the owner as well. And uh, that's what you're trying to do. You don't want to frighten a horse with his first race. And jockeys sometimes, of course, particularly the younger ones, when they're when they're uh, riding a nice horse first time out, they they think he might win, and they're they're sometimes inclined to be a little bit too hard on him. Um, uh, but Michael uh, was uh, very good at giving horses a nice education, getting them in between horses, behind horses, and uh, you know in in the bunch, and then squeeze them out at the end and if they can win they can win but if they if they're not going to win they're not going to well you know they're not going to be given a hard race to win i always my instructions are i prefer to see them beaten than win with a hard race first time out um and another problem in ireland when you win first time out you just have to move into a pretty hot contest second time out you know you there there aren't it's not like england where there are all these novice races uh, now uh, where you know, of course, some of them are pretty hot, but uh, you you have a better chance of of meeting uh, more modest opposition uh, there than you will in Ireland. So, um, winning first time out can mean you're in a tough race the second time. Whereas when you just get beaten first time out and you've had a nice experience, then you can go into a maiden. Of course, it could be a hot maiden too. But but you know, you're back in maiden company, and he went on to to Leopardstown. Uh, when he had the race under his belt and he had a nice nice maiden win there won won comfortably a few lengths and uh, again he had a he, had, he he won comfortably so he had an easy an easy race and he had another nice experience so it was perfect so after those two nice experiences then it was into group two company in the beresford um there was a short price bally doyle favorite but um your fellow wins and you had the runner-up as well Yes, uh, yeah, it was it was nice. That that was that had been a very wet um, summer, and uh, I was just praying that you know uh, the ground would dry up a little bit for the Beresfords. It was the last Sunday in September, and sure enough, uh, ground was okay. So we got to run him, and um, he won nicely. He won half a length, you know, but he was always going smoothly, always looking like a winner. He was comfortable throughout the race. And um, beat a nice horse of ours, Murian, who uh, had won his maiden at Leopardstown. He was, you know, a good horse. He wasn't a 
top horse. He was third in the Irish Derby the following year and eventually was sold and he won the Sydney Cup in Australia, but wasn't a star horse. Uh, but he, he he was a good yardstick, so he beat him comfortably enough half length. But as usual, he didn't do a whole lot. He just, just travelled around nicely, looked a winner and won a half a length. Uh, nothing spectacular about it. But we were delighted with him because it was a great, great start. You know, he had a great experience, three races, none of them too hard. Uh, three was enough for experience. We didn't have to pressing too hard and we were able to avoid heavy ground so uh, we were delighted with the promise he was showing and um, particularly since you know he was so well bred uh, so we thought gosh you know maybe this fellow now he might be he might be a classic horse so with this classic prospect he does he stay with you then for the winter yes oh yeah yeah he did he did he didn't uh, he didn't go anywhere I tried to give him, I thought I might give him a month trotting uh, just to give him a break, but he was so fresh after a week, I had to start cantering him again. So he, he kept he kept on the go. Uh, you don't give them you know, long holidays during the winter. They can't. Those, if you have a horse that's a classic horse or might be a Guinea's contender, you, 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 don't, um, you don't give them much time off. They've got to train. They're like any other athlete. You know, they've got to go out and do their canters. But... Uh, but you do like to give them, say, October off, or if their horse is busy in October, you like to give them November maybe off. But um, uh, anyway, he, he came back cantering pretty quick. He needed he needed uh, he needed the energy uh, burned off him, and he was safer that way and happier that way in himself. So uh, so he kept uh, cantering. I'd say from the second half of October onwards, he was on the move. So he's cantering away, and then. I'll take you to St. Patrick's Day, 17th of March of 2009. Most of the country are out at the parades or maybe having a pint or something, but there's a bit, a bit of trouble maybe in your yard to see the stars. There's, there's something slightly amiss with them. That's right. Yeah, the temperature, uh, quite a high temperature, 103. Uh, no, that's a high temperature for a person, but uh, it's not uh, you know, as high for a horse, but high enough. And um, yeah, he started work, started fast work at the end of February. Uh, probably the last one of the maybe the last Friday or last Tuesday in February started a bit of fast work so we had them sort of on the move you know I always like to have them a little bit ahead of schedule in case in case you get a setback like this um, so um, he was well on in his work uh, going well and it was a Tuesday uh, so he was due to work again he was to work on Tuesdays and Fridays fast work so uh, that was a big setback. Uh, I thought, gosh, you know, that's that's uh, that's the guinea's gone, maybe. But uh, at the same time, I knew, you know, he was he had a terrific constitution. He had a terrific uh, physical and mental constitution all around. So, and he was a tremendous eater. So we just monitored him closely with bloods, and uh, uh, we gave him uh, a full week off without cantering him. Temperature came down quickly. And uh, there were his blood showed that it was a viral infection, but uh, it wasn't one of the serious ones. It wasn't herpes. We were able to exclude that. So that was a positive. And um, that gave us a chance. And his blood returned to normal fairly quickly. Uh, by the next Monday, uh, it, it was nearly, nearly normal. So uh, we started to canter him. And all through, he was eating well and looking well and fresh and fresh in himself. So uh, we're able to get them back on track, but you you never know uh, when they have a viral infection that close to a big race if your horse is going to be in top form. You know, sometimes you know, it takes horses a few months to hit top form after certain things. Um, all the other things uh, resulting in a temperature can you can get back to form a bit quicker, but um, we just have to suck it and see. You know, work them and bring them along, and then see 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 where we were near the day so uh, things did go well subsequently so thankfully he makes it to new market for the 2000 guineas it's his first run as a two-year-old his first group one and like you said you've had the little setback so i imagine you couldn't have been hugely confident despite his excellent form the previous season uh, no no we couldn't be hugely confident i suppose he was eight or ten to one um and particularly then that we, we had brought him away to Leopardstown uh, on the day of the Bally Sachs and the, and the Guineas trial, uh, mid-April, 
15th of April, something like that. And he'd worked nicely. I had another very good horse at that time, Arizan, who uh, was a good prospect too, won the futurity and was beaten favourite in the national stakes that year. So he was he was really going well too. And uh, there were nice companions. But a week before um, the Guineas, uh, the ground was quite soft and they worked together because they were both intended runners at the time. And um, Arizan worked better than him. Uh, only time any horse ever worked better than him. We were a bit just surprised and disappointed. Uh, ground was very soft. Um, so we were wondering uh, whether which of them would run and would they both run and all that. But it was only on the Thursday before the guineas I changed uh, onto the woodchip gallop here, the old Vic gallop, which was riding you know fast uh, at that time. And uh, he flew up on that faster ground, you know. But I just often wondered subsequently, I mightn't have been the ground at all. It was probably the fact that it was a toughish gallop uh, and it wasn't still very long after he had that temperature. I'd say the horse was only just starting to come to himself. Uh, and uh, um, looking back on it, I used to worry about the ground and maybe, you know, maybe the ground wasn't an issue at all. I'd say I, I, I might have been put slightly on the wrong track there by the fact that he was having a strong bit of work uh, with a very good horse at the time and um, he, he just wasn't sparkling but fortunately he was sparkling the following week uh, when we worked him in the old week on the Thursday he flew uh, and uh, we decided then to declare him and yeah he was he was um, comfortable winner but there's a photograph of him taken about 10 days after the guineas and you could see he was a bit lean looking and we took a similar photograph in exactly the same place 10 days after the arc and you wouldn't think it was the same horse you know he had really thrived right through the summer and strengthened up but uh, you could see the guineas took a bit out of him and that that temperature uh, could very easily have uh, put the whole thing you know the, the guineas off off the agenda really not many horses that's a very rare thing it, it's not a rare thing for a horse to win uh, a race soon after a viral infection and a high temperature but it's a very rare thing for a horse to win a classic like the 2000 guineas uh, that's soon soon after an infection like that and that was it, you know, that was see the stars. He had the constitution. He could do that. Uh, other horses, other horses couldn't do it, but it almost derailed him. Thankfully it didn't, and not just win it, but he won it very comfortably, as you said. And I believe Michael Canaan got off on that day and expressed uh, a bit of excitement to you about him. Yeah, well, he did. Yeah, well, that uh, well that day, yeah, we were delighted. You know, we knew we had to give him a chance. We thought he obviously would stay a bit of distance weren't quite sure how far, but we knew he'd stay more than a mile, but we had to give him the chance, bred the way he was, and with all that he has shown us, such a beautiful horse in every way, you had to give him his chance in the guineas, you know, people are inclined to pigeonhole horses a little bit too quickly these days, and uh, not give them their chance uh, uh, in in the shorter races, uh, and trying to stretch them out straight away. Uh, but uh, it was important to give him his chance in the guineas. If he was going to be a really good horse, he had to win the guineas. So it was a really important race. And uh, and so we were delighted when he came through it. So uh, Mick was sort of positive afterwards about the derby, you know. He said thought he'd be a great ride in the derby and we'd have to go for that, which was the plan anyway in the back of our minds. But, you know, you take these things one, one race at a time. Mm. So on we went. On you went to Epsom um, the following month. And I've, I've, I've heard you say that this time, you'd, you'd had the winner of the Derby in Sindar previously, but I've heard you say this time was a greater level of anxiety for you because of the, the pressure and expectation with, uh, that was on See the Stars as the Guineas winner. That's right. As the Guineas winner, he was, uh, you know, uh, an obvious favourite, even though he wasn't favourite on the day, but himself and Fame and Glory were the two, you know, market leaders. And, uh, yeah, it's always a big thing. You know, if you can win the Derby with the Guineas winner, it's, it's something special. They're, they're the, you know, that's the Holy Grail, really, to have a Guineas and Derby winner. And uh, because it's such a contrast between the two races, you know, different track, uh, 50% longer distance, 
uh, only then a month after the guineas too comes up quick enough. So it's a big test, big test of a horse, big test of the thoroughbred. And, you know, it's it's what the thoroughbred is founded on is is that, that sort of test what horses can can do it. Most 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 horses can't. So uh, so I was anxious. Needless, needless to say, you're always anxious, but I was anxious to see uh, what would happen. Um, as it turned out, the the race went like clockwork. You know, the first mm-hmm. thing Mick said when he came back was, "God, Plan A worked anyway." He said, "You know," so he didn't have to reach for Plan B or C uh, because you know there was. Uh, uh, might have started a little steady for Furlong, but it, it went on into a nice, a nice rhythm, and he was in a beautiful position there, on the rail, following the two pacemakers. And uh, Frankie was upside him on Kitewood, and he just coasted around um, the whole way very comfortably, and uh, uh, got a lead right up to the last Furlong, and then went on about his business, and as usual, didn't win by far, but but he won very comfortably. Yeah, he did indeed. And then his next intended target, I believe, was the Irish Derby at the Curra, but things didn't quite go to plan there. Yeah, well, that's obviously what we what you'd be trying to do is is win another derby, and uh, we would have liked to have won uh, another derby at home there. But um, it, um, yeah, they were watering a bit, and uh, then some heavy rain came on uh, Friday evening before the evening racing there. Uh, we had him declared and all, of course. Uh, but uh, when I saw that rain, I said, "No, it's just you know, it's genuinely quite soft." So um, uh, we took him out because we had we had the uh, option of the Eclipse Stakes the following week. We had that entry; it was always there as the as the Plan B. Um, so we had no hesitation in taking him out. Uh, Mrs. Joy always said to me, you know, you, you, you train the horse as if you own him yourself and you do whatever you want to do. Take him out any day you want. Just tell me afterwards what you're doing, what you've done. So it's it was e- an easy decision to make. The owner was always supportive. Um, so, uh, as it turned out, it was a blessing, I think, to, uh, run in the Eclipse. It was, you know, he broke the track record. He beat a different type of horse. He beat older horses, ran against them for the first time. So he met a whole different group of horses. A number of Group 1 winners were in the race, good horses. And um, he was able to beat them. And uh, uh, so it, it was more of a feather in his cap than it would have been actually to beat Fame and Glory again in the Irish Derby. Um and it was a great, great occasion. Broke the track record, as I said, uh, which was good. And um, uh, he didn't win by far. It was, <laughs> it was one of those races again where we had a couple of pacemakers. Vadens uh, went off, ferocious gallop, and he was always, you know, tanking along uh, very strongly that day, uh, and arrived up on their heels there in the straight, halfway down the straight. And of course, the pacemakers then had had enough and, and collapsed in front of him. And uh, he was left left in front a bit too soon. And at Sandown, as you will know, the 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 stands, uh, the winning post is way up at the end of the stands, going up up the hill, at the end of the near the end of the straight. And I think the horse thought, you know, as usual, he's he'd won the race. You know, he'd gone to the front, and the game game was over. Uh, as he came up to the stands, but there was quite a bit of quite a bit of space still to run uh, till he got up past the stands. So he was switched off a bit, and then Rip Van Winkle came at him with a great run. I was worried for a little while. I said, "God, he's you know, is he going to get beaten today?" But then he just pulled out a bit again at the end when when Mick asked him, and uh, yeah, he won he won comfortably again. But you know, it was. A tough race and record time so it was um it never it never seemed to be an effort for him but you know he was still record time so he he, he put in a big effort yeah absolutely I, I believe that day you did ask mick if he had the opportunity to to show him off a bit yeah yeah i, I thought i was more worried mick was being a bit lazy on the horse that he wasn't you know he, he wasn't exerting himself as much as he could uh 
but uh, I said to him, yes, as we were walking across uh, to leg him up, I said, now show him off a bit today. Give him a crack. You know, make him make him win by four or five lengths. You know, we know we know he's we know he's good, but nobody else will know he's as good as he is if we don't if we don't win by a, a wide margin someday. And he said, you must be joking. He stopped, you know, and he looked up at me. He said, you must be joking. This horse will never win by any more than a length and a half. <laughs> Forget about it, you know. So I said, oh, well, okay, I'll be, I'll be happy with that. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't object as long as we win. And we, we kept winning. Yeah, and so approved. Um, his next race then was the Judmont at York. Uh, it's only a four-runner field, uh, and all three rivals are, are trained by Aidan O'Brien. And uh, they gave it a good go, particularly Master Craftsman. Um, it, it seemed to take your fella a, a couple of strides to kind of hit top gear and just go past him. Yes, well, we had this uh, decision, you know, do we run the King George or what do we do? How many more races will, will he have? And I thought, you know, he'd had three and we'd have sort of a slight pause and miss the King George and wait for York because uh, Michael said that, you know, if you were to pick a track that was perfect for Sea of Stars, it was York because it's, a, you know, it's a very level track and uh, a mile and a quarter there, you know, suited him plenty, plenty of speed, plenty of acceleration. So we went there and there were, there were a non-runner or two and we just had Aiden and ourselves and uh, <laughs> we were wondering what, 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 what would be the tactics. And uh, so uh, when Johnny went through that gap, uh, you see the two pacemakers opened up and Johnny went through the middle uh, and uh, Mick was on his heels and of course he followed him through, which is what no, nobody expected that to happen. You know, we thought, you know, he'd go around the pacemakers, but he just shot him through the gap behind Master Craftsman. And then he steadied him again then. He had to settle, he said, oh, this is too early now, I don't need to go, I'll just follow him for a bit longer. And uh, and of course the horse gets a, horses get a little confused by that when they're asked to go twice. He had to go once to get through the gap, but he didn't really want to go for his race at that point. So he, he settled them again. So it confused the horse a bit. Um, I don't yeah it did look like he he was taking a while to get going I agree with you uh, that's definitely the way it looked but it was more the horse was switched off again you know and he said oh what are you asking me to do here do I have to go and do it again and uh, so um, anyway he went on and again having looked like he was in a battle uh, he won comfortably at the end now mind you Johnny told me and Aidan told me subsequently that Master Craftsman was really flying that day uh, they, they thought they had him really at his peak and uh, he was a you know, very good horse very good adaptable horse who could win on any ground uh, so he was a tough nut but when Mick came in and got off him he said oh, he said he'd come on for that race now he had a nice blow pulling up he'd be better the next day and uh, even though I you know, thought we, we had him pretty ready, but he, he, he thought that he'd, it, um, it was one day that he had a bit of a blow, the only, probably the only day that he blew, blew a bit with him pulling him up. And um, so we were happy. Happy it worked out again on the day and we could go on to the next one. Yeah, and he, he certainly was better the next day, which was his, it was his, finally his chance to win a Group 1 in Ireland. Uh, the champion stakes at Leopardstown, and this time Aidan has five in the race, including including the Irish Derby winner, Fame and Glory. So were you concerned about the team tactics element of it? Uh, well, you're always aware that, you know, they, you know, they, they had the ability with all those horses to control the race to suit themselves. So and we had no pacemaker. So, you know, we didn't have another horse for Mrs. Choi at the time. So we were, we were a bit helpless from that point of view. So, um, you're always a bit concerned, but you know, uh, Michael was never too worried, you know, because he had all the aces in his up his sleeve, really, and uh, he was on the best horse, so he was never worried. And and one thing Aidan always did, uh, um, there was never any team tactics, really. He just he just had pacemakers, you know, uh, so there was never any funny business going on. I'd have to say, uh, but and it always suited us that he had pacemakers. Um, because uh, see the stars was a he wasn't a free horse now like frankly he wasn't a puller but he was enthusiastic and uh, when he got to the when the stalls opened he was mad for action and uh, uh, I was always more worried about a slow pace rather than a fast pace uh, so um, 
you know, fast pace tends to give the fairest result. You know, the best horse wins fast pace. So it was suiting us fine what, what Aidan was doing. Um, they did uh, try a little maneuver there with fame and glory to you sat behind us and then sprinted past us there at the end of the back straight. I think they were trying to get uh, Michael to compete with him from a good bit out, but he, he just let fame and glory go and took his time and then went past him in the straight. So they did try that little maneuver to try and confuse him, but uh, or confuse Michael, but you know, Michael Canaan doesn't get confused uh, in big races. He's, you know, he knows exactly what he wants to do himself. So it was, um, yeah, it was great to actually get the chance to run him uh, in Ireland, having missed the Irish Derby. It would have been a shame if he had never, never won in Ireland. And um, and there was a big if that week. There was torrential rain. There were there were race meetings called off left, right, and centre all week. Uh, I think that the bookmakers had him uh, long odds on that he wouldn't run. Uh, they were offering, Paddy Power was offering prices on would see the stars run, and he was he was odds on to be an on-runner. Uh, and nobody expected him to run. I had walked the track a couple of times, and actually I knew it was, it was better than uh, people might have been expecting. Uh, it was taking the rain very well. And uh, walked the track then finally on Friday evening, Friday evening, you know, seven o'clock or so, uh, to make the final decision about whether he would run or not. A lot of people had made up their mind not to go to the races that he wasn't wasn't going to run. But anyway, uh, when I got around to the winning post, Tom Burke, the manager, was there waiting for, anxiously for me and then ran in to make the phone call to RTE to get it on the nine o'clock news. At the, the end of the nine o'clock news, they had it that he was going to run. So um, in the end, there wasn't maybe quite the, because of that uncertainty, there wasn't quite the, the crowd, but there were 13,000 people or something. But you could see they were all there to see him. You know, there's a fantastic photograph taken behind the horses. He walks into the winner's enclosure and every available space on the back of the stand is taken up by people. Um, you know, it was a terrific reception. You know, everybody was there. They, they knew what they were witnessing, you know, that this was, you know, the best Irish horse ever. And, uh, um, you know, they had to see him, <laughs> had to be there. And um, it was uh, it was great that he was able to win and win so well for them. It was the race that gave him his highest rating, actually even though, again, he didn't kill himself, but he did win by two and three-quarter lengths or something this time. Uh, Mick, Mick still didn't manage to make it five or six, but anyway, we, <laughs> he, he won by a bit further. But, yeah, he did win by a good few lengths, and you can even hear the reception, like the crowd, when you watch the replays back, you can hear the crowd all just love him, don't they? Mm. Ah, yes, yeah, and I know they appreciated it. They knew they, knew they were looking at something special, and... Uh, and he, he, he delivered a, a big run for them on the day. And uh, it was a terrific trial for the, for the arc, of course. It was, it was the prep race for the arc. Um, so he had four weeks. Sometimes the arc is three weeks after Leopardstone. Uh, but it, um, it's probably three weeks now since they've moved the, uh, the meeting a week later. But it was four weeks at that time. And... Um, so it was it was ideal so those four weeks you're you're preparing this horse who's had a perfect season uh, this is going to be his last race everyone's kind of rooting for him what what's what's the pressure like for you i mean are you just nervous every day going to see him yeah well it was i must say though it got a bit nerve-wracking there for that because it was the chance you know to the owners that won the arc with urban sea so they were they were keen to to win it again uh, we were looking at the weather forecast and it was seemed to be for fine weather through september and um uh you know you're just praying that nothing goes wrong he doesn't get a temperature again or take a lame step or stone bruise or whatever you know all the million things that can go wrong uh so every day is an anxious day and um Horses in great form, of course. Uh, he was pleasing us in every way. So it was just a matter of keeping him right. You know, it looked like, sure, he can't be beaten. He's the best horse by far. Uh, he's just got to turn up. Uh, but, um, you know, it's never it's never that easy. There's always something. And, 
And as you get near the time, you start to worry them closer to the race, the more, you know, the more doubts you have, you know, and the opposition seems to get stronger and stronger the closer you get to the day. So um, it was just a matter of everything going right uh, on the day then. And um, he had the ground. Uh, he was best horse on form. Uh, he had a reasonable draw. There was nothing negative about the draw. Um, so we were obviously had our hearts in our mouth, uh, hoping mm. everything would go well. It, it looks like it's, it might not be going well early on. It, it's a big field, 19 runners um, see the stars. He's, he's enthusiastic early on and he doesn't have the easiest of passages. Um, how, how was it for you kind of watching, watching that unfold? Yeah, uh, that was the first day I was a little anxious, particularly early on when I saw him fighting for his head uh, because the, the early pace, the first furlong wasn't strong. This is what I said, said to you earlier. I was always worried about slow pace for him. Um, we're wondering, you know, would we have to make the running someday? Uh, because he was such a, an idle horse in front, you, you'd be kind of wondering would that suit him or not. And um, so I was anxious. I, I was. I was. I was alarmed when I saw him fight for his head at the start in the first furlong. Uh, but then Mick pulled him back, and he just anchored him. Uh, he got him in behind a few more horses, and he just anchored him. Uh, but it meant he was further back than he ever had been before, and uh, and the and the and the arc is always a big field. It's a it can be a difficult race. You know you can get into trouble there very easily. And um, as a little anxious, he was never too far behind the horses. The big dangers though, there were these pacemakers, as usual, off in front, maybe a bit too far in front. Uh, so. It looked like he, he had a lot of ground to make up, but he wasn't too far behind the, the serious contenders. And um, uh, the big worry was at the top of the straight, uh, he had to get past one horse, it was a good horse there, uh, Pellier, Olivia Pellier was on him, Getaway. And he had to get past him. If he, if he hadn't got past him, it might have been a little tricky for a bit longer. I'm sure he'd have still found a way and come down around them maybe but uh, but he went past him uh, he, he was starting to go past another horse and then Mick as he said himself he looped him he went around the two of them and got past him and once he got past him I breathed a sigh of relief I said well now he's he's, he's not not going to be held up probably now he he'll have the speed to get through the gaps as they as they presented themselves and so it was then it was yeah it was a big relief of course, it made it more dramatic for the public. You know, everyone had written him off at halfway. They said, oh, he can't win today. He's too he's too far behind. So everybody was anxious and thought, God, he, he can't win. And so it was made it twice as spectacular, I suppose, uh, the manner the manner in which he did it. Absolutely. It's, it's an incredible uh, race to watch back. You used the word relief there twice. Um, was that the kind of, that was the overwhelming emotion of it all? Just the relief is it's fine. It's gone okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, well that's always. I think every trainer will tell you that. That's that's. It's always relief, you know, when you have a good horse in a in a, in a good race. Uh, you know, uh, not even a horse like See the Stars. It's always relief when they when they win. But particularly the horse like that, yeah, uh, you're just relieved that they they do. He was able to do what he's supposed to do and what he's capable of doing. That nothing went wrong. So it's it's. Uh, yeah, big, big relief. Uh, but it was, yeah, no, it was a fantastic day, you know, for him to, to win all the races, to, to win the six races. And it, you know, I'm old enough to remember Nijinsky, uh, who was undefeated going into the arc, and uh, it was a great horse. And um, it was just so disappointing, you know, it was disappointing for everyone even the neutral observers that he got beaten by a horse who wasn't wasn't in his league but anyway he, he beat him on the day so it was so so disappointing i didn't want to see that happen to our fellow so it was twice a relief because of uh, the memory i had of nijinsky on that note and i hope it's not a silly question but bearing in mind the weight of responsibility and pressure um and that perfect three-year-old season if the owner had turned around to you and said We'll give him another season in training. What, what would your reaction have been? 
<laughs> I'd say I, I would have said it would be no trouble to the horse, but it might be trouble to the trainer because <laughs> uh, he, he, it was nerve-wracking to have a horse like that. Uh, now you don't. Uh, it was nerve-wracking at the end, you know, uh, coming up to the arc. Uh, up to, I mean, it was always a privilege. You felt fortunate to be training a horse like that. It was, it was an honor and a privilege, and and it was exciting and it was great to be in charge of him and have 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 uh, the job of training him. I enjoyed it, but uh, just towards the end, uh, it was more nerve wracking, and that would have would have gone on like that as a four year. And then he had this uh, enormous capital value too, you know, which would have made you worry more about an injury or something, you know. So, so I'm not sure. Oh, look, it would have been very exciting, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, we'll never know how it would have worked out, but uh, I was just as pleased when, when he went, when, when the day he left. It was a sad day and it was an emotional day, of course, when he we loaded him up and saw him out the gate. But there was a relief in it too, you know. It was, uh, uh, he was a big responsibility at that time. Uh, so, uh, um, maybe Aidan O'Brien is used to these uh, every year, but for the rest of us, uh, you know, you maybe get just an occasional chance at it, and uh, it's um, it's certainly a responsibility for everybody. I think everybody felt it uh, in the yard to look after him well and keep him safe. Absolutely, I can only imagine. So the horse ran in and won a Group One every month between May and October inclusive um an incredible training feat what, what would you say what, what's the key to that is, is it his constitution the way the horse just does enough in his, in his races or what do you think yeah some people have said that you know he, he only did enough in his races maybe that's why why he was able to keep going but yeah i suppose that look at that's one part of it but uh, because you know he was never really pressed even though he had two track records uh, sandown and york uh, he was never, you know, uh, he, he never found it difficult to win. Uh, but uh, but I don't think that was the main reason uh, why he had uh, that had got that great record and was able to keep going from month to month. It was just his constitution, his physical constitution, and his mental mental strength, mental and physical constitution. He uh, he worked pretty hard. He was a horse you had to keep on top of because he had all this extra energy. He used to eat a lot of grub. He, he, he'd eat more than any other horse in the yard. Um, so we used to you know just load it into him and work him accordingly. And um, uh, he needed he needed to be busy. So he did work hard. He had a fairly rigorous regime. He, he trained to a different beat to the regular horse. Uh, but um, but it was all so easy for him, uh, and and he he was very sound. Uh, apart from the temperature on St Patrick's Day, he never never missed a beat, and um, it was that just that physical constitution. He 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 was as tough as old boots, and uh, was never never troubled by his work, and he could sail on. I mean. Uh, well, well, he was waiting to go to stud, actually, about um, two and a half weeks or so, mid-October or so, uh, two and a half, maybe three weeks after the arc, the lad who was riding, I was still cantering him uh, just to keep him quiet, and uh, and the lad riding him says, oh, boss, he needs another race, you know, he needs another race. So, uh, you know, he was he was better than ever. Uh, Michael said that, his last bit of work before the arc, he said, God, this fellow's better than ever. So he, you know, he, he he could have he could have kept going uh, again. He still wasn't still wasn't at the end of his tether. He wasn't really in need of a rest. But the trainer was in need of a rest after the arc, so he didn't run again. <laughs> <laughs> so well, he didn't he didn't run again, and he went off the Giltown Stud. Um, what would you make of his career as a stallion so far? And can you see any of his qualities in in his in his progeny? Well, he's been going great. Yeah, he's had a he's had a great uh, career so far. I think uh, hopefully there's even better to come. Uh, the mares he's probably having visit him now are better than he's had previously. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, he's done well. He's come up with some very very good horses. You know, uh, Tegruda was first good, you know, really good filly. Won the Oaks and the King George. 
And then he had a derby winner, of course, Harzand, and uh, he's uh, he's had several Group One horses, and he passes on his temperament. Uh, you know, a lot of them have great, easy temperament and uh, beautiful action. A lot of them are lengthy horses, great walkers, great, great movers. Um, so that's um, yeah, no, he's been he's been very successful. Doesn't get the mares that Galileo would get, you know, or maybe Frankel. They, they've they've been. You know that's Galileo's success is 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 the sort of mares that Coolmore get to him and and mm. he blends so well with them. But um, uh, but our fellow I think could could have uh, even great years ahead of him. Please God, if all stays well. Um, but you'd have to say, yeah, he's one of Europe's elite stallions. He's he's up there uh, with you know Galileo, Dubawi, Frankel. Uh, you know, Kingman now is yeah, yeah. So he's up there. He's up there in the top league. Yeah, and have you had a chance to go out and visit him out there? Uh, not in the last year, but uh, yeah, I usually see him once or twice a year. But I haven't seen him now uh, in the last year. Uh, it's probably eighteen months, maybe, since I've seen him. And he's still, yeah, he was a very popular horse. A lot of people go like to go and see him, of course, because of who he is. But um, yeah, he was. He was always. He still, I think, has a kind of a racehorse's shape. A lot of stallions get a bit out of shape uh, as they get a bit older. Uh, but he always had. Um, he still looked like he was in training. Almost, you know, he still had a trim shape to him uh, for years after he went to stud. And uh, he likes to go out in the paddock. But uh, he, after a while, he gets bored by the paddock, and he's at the gate saying, "You know, bring me in." And they still lunge him every day. They 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 have to put him in the in the sand ring and let him canter around. He canters around his man Ray that looks after him, and because um, he he still thinks he's a racehorse, he he has to exercise. He has to, you know, he's like a somebody who's a compulsive walker, or a compulsive jogger. You know, he has to you know come in and do his. He feels better if he's if he's ex- he's not an old slob that eats grass all day and walks in and out of the paddock. He he still wants to be exercised, and uh, and you could see it in him for a long time. Uh, as I say, I haven't seen him the last year, but you could see his. He still had a racy shape to him, and uh, he still looked like a racehorse. And of course, he's still as beautiful as ever. Uh, still, still the whole, the perfect, perfect horse. It's great to hear. Um, just a word on his jockey, Michael Canan, who who retired at the end of that perfect season. Um, how important would you say he was in in Caesar Stars's uh, career? Ah, sure, he was. He was. He was a great asset. Uh, it was tremendous to have somebody of his experience on a horse like that. You know, that had a lot of expectation on him. Obviously, it would have been a bit of a strain for a lot of jockeys to ride him. And uh, such a great horse that everybody was expecting to win again. Maybe uh, all those big races. Uh, all the horses from Ballet Oil ranged up against him. Uh, um, Mick was always, you know, cool and calm and uh, ready for the big occasion. Uh, it was a great comfort to have him. You know, he'd been in all those races before, all those tracks. You know, how many Epsom derbies would he have ridden in before he rode see the stars? You know, uh, probably more than any other, certainly more than any other jockey that was riding at the time. And... Um, the arcs, all the arcs, and you know every every track of you inside out, and uh, so it was a great comfort to have him. Uh, you know, you knew you couldn't have a better person on your side, and uh, he loved riding and work. Of course, Michael loves riding homework, even on ordinary horses. You know, he just loves riding work. So he he, he was riding them all the time at home as well. So uh, yeah, we had that continuity right through the year at home and at the track. So it was a great experience uh, for all of us and great comfort to, to have him. I expect the answer to this question is no, but are there any other little nuggets or stories from Daisy Ran? Any other quirks or anything you could tell us about? No, he had no quirks. Uh, he had no quirks. Uh, I must say he was, he was uh, straightforward. He just, as he, as he got older, he got more aggressive and he, you know, he was, he, he, he I had to have a good rider on him who had a good lad, Alex, uh, used to ride him out and he was very calm on him. And, and uh, uh, you know, he, he would throw a jump and a kick just just 
for just for well-being. You know, it wasn't he was trying to get his writer off. There was nothing malicious about it. He was just so well in himself. He let us squeal and he throw a jump and a kick just, just, just to stretch himself. You know, and uh, so you had to be ready for him. And uh, did, it was lucky to have a good lad to to ride him, who wasn't afraid of him. And um, no, after that, he was, uh, you know, he was a very inquisitive horse. He used to have his head out over the door. He'd, he'd watch, uh, yeah, he'd watch what was happening. He'd know what was happening. And towards the end of his, towards the end of his career, uh, he was getting so many visitors. Um, and my wife and son Kevin went down one day to bring somebody to take a photograph of him towards the end. And there he was, he'd be looking out the door anyway, watching them come over. And his bridle is hanging out, is always hanging outside the door on a, on a hook. And he had a big, of course, he was a big horse and a big long neck and big reach. What did he do? He reached over, caught the bridle in his mouth and sort of handed it to, handed it to Kevin, my son, as they came to the door. Uh, and that was, that was, uh, we'd never seen that happen before. But that was him, you see, he was, he was really clever and uh, uh, very, you know, understood everything that was going on in the world around him. He knew exactly what was happening. And that was probably, that was a pretty unique thing. Uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have had a, uh, as clever a horse. Uh, I was, certainly didn't have a horse who could do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so That's fantastic. So my final question, John, um, you're recently retired, maybe had a little bit of time to reflect on a magnificent career. Uh, looking back, is your, your management of that three-year-old season, is that your proudest achievement? Ah, sure, look, you just, you just feel, you're, you're, I don't know, you just feel you're lucky to, lucky to have had the horse, uh, lucky that he was sent to us, and um, lucky that they didn't sell him as a yearling. Mm. Um, so we were just very fortunate, and I felt very grateful to have him, and... Uh, and then, yes, I was very grateful for the outcome, you know, that he could win all those races and that he could go to Paris and win the arc and finish up like that. It was, uh, as I said before, such a relief. But, uh, yeah, it was It was certainly, I suppose, I was proud of it. But I just felt so grateful for it, really. It was just, I remember sitting in the plane coming home and saying, my God, he did it, you know. Did all that really happen, you know? Uh, that he could do all that and that, you know, weren't, weren't we lucky that, that everything worked out, you know, and that he didn't get boxed in and that, you know, uh, all the things that could have happened could have gone wrong. So I just felt, you know, uh, gosh, you know, imagine that happening, you know, it creates, it must be the, you know, the greatest thing that could happen to you. And we, we were just fortunate he did. So it was that type of event, really, you know, uh, it was, something you could only dream about and probably never expect to happen. And, um, and there are plenty of good trainers who have been very successful, but sure, they'll never have a horse like that. And, you know, that, that'll never happen to them. And uh, so for it to happen to us, it was, yeah, we were just so grateful for it. It was a bit of a miracle, really. So, um, yeah, a tremendous event for us. And yeah, no, I think uh, the racing public were grateful to watch it all unfold. So, John, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed that. It's been a, a, an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Uh, thank you so much for giving me your time and telling me all about the horses. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Not at all, Mark. Well, you know, thanks. Thanks for your enthusiasm. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's nice. Uh, sure, it's nice to be able to pass it on. I've, probably a lot of people have heard bits of it before. But anyway, it's, uh, it's, sure, it's my pleasure. I don't, I don't tire of talking about them either. So... <laughs> I, I, I don't think people tire of, li of hearing about him, so um, I'm sure the listeners will love it. So thank you so much. Not at all, not at all. And there we have John Ox on See the Stars. But how about some more? Here is my chat with Jim McGrath about his legendary commentary on that arc win. Okay, so Jim, we're here to have a quick chat about See the Stars. Um, you'd obviously been following, th following him throughout that perfect season. It all comes down to Arc Day. You're commenting, commentating on a, a massive moment in the history of the sport, live on the BBC. So I'm just wondering, even despite all your experience, is that something you were nervous about? I wouldn't say nervous about it. Uh, certainly uh, really excited 
uh, in anticipation. Uh, as you say, I'd followed his career uh, right from the start, the same as uh, everyone in the media had. And as you recall, there was enormous amount of coverage that year uh, leading up to the arc. Uh, and I think just about every feature writer in Fleet Street had latched onto this horse. And there were endless interviews with John Ox uh, and Mick Canan leading up to the arc. So it was, uh, the scene was set for something really great to happen. And, you know, we'd seen all the way, we plotted his course all the way along. We'd seen the 2000 uh, Newmarket, the Derby at Epsom, uh, the Eclipse at Sandown, the Judmont, the Irish champion. Uh, now we were at Longchamp for what we hoped would be one of the great uh, and epic races of, uh, of uh, well, of that decade. So, and I don't think it disappointed at all. It didn't disappoint. Um, early on, the horse is quite keen and he, he's a little bit far back. Were you worried in the run that it, it wasn't going to happen? I was very worried coming around the home turn. Yes, very worried. I think that early in the, he had drawn well. He'd drawn uh, gate six, which is a good draw. It's near the inside. And I was very, very conscious of what Mick Canan was doing uh, during the run. I think he was very happy the way he, he began. Uh, I could see that he wasn't wanting to get uh, pocketed on the rail. He wanted to be one off the rail. I don't know that uh, he actually was able, uh, actually succeeded in staying off the rail for a long period of time. But certainly that seemed to be his, uh, his aim early from my uh, my position and looking mostly on a, on a, on a television monitor. Uh, so, you know, that was my impression early. And it was also significant that in the race, there were two tearaway leaders. Uh, both of them were Valley Doyle horses. Uh, and they'd, um, uh, I think Set Sail was one of them. Right. Ron Ducal was another. Uh, and these were setting the pace and they were setting a really good pace as well in fact set sail was so far in front uh, at uh, uh, the little little forest uh, over there on the far side or behind the trees which you can't see from the stands but you can see if you're looking at the television pictures on your monitor and uh, i think when i went back to to the leaders i actually missed set sail he was so far in front i think i called Grand ducal leading from Stasolita at that stage. But uh, there was another one in front of Ron Ducal, who was about six in front of him. So it was a really hectic pace. And coming towards the turn, you always expect the, the leaders to come back, which they, they did eventually. But it seemed to me to be taking an age for it to happen. Uh, they uh, they came into the straight. They were still well clear coming towards the turn. And I thought... Mick's going to have to have uh, really get his skates on here and, and he's also going to have to have a bit of luck uh, to get through because there was plenty of traffic around him. So I was very worried coming to the turn. Mm, a bit of luck and also ha he has to be a champion, as you say. So that's one of the, there's a lot of iconic lines in the call. I'm wondering, uh, are those prepared or do you just trust yourself to call it as it's happening? Or Well, it's a really thing to uh, prepare something um, I always liken the the, the uh, race commentator as a bats like a batsman in cricket. You have to have a, a repertoire of shots uh, ready for any uh, set of circumstances. Uh, and it's not formulaic; it's it's more reflex rather than anything. And it's just basically, you know, once you once you get into your rhythm and once you uh, relax into it and relax into the role uh, that should come naturally and that's exactly what that was I mean it, that was exactly my thought at, the, at that moment as a see the stars fan I was saying to myself he's gonna have to be a champion to win from there mm. and which is exactly what I was feeling at that moment and uh, I'd say probably uh, what three or four seconds later I said I think he is a champion I reckon he is a champion mm. and, uh, and and that's exactly what he was Absolutely. And even I was looking this evening at the, the comments on YouTube of the video and there's so many praising the call. Is is it one that you yourself would look back on and be particularly proud of? Very proud of it. You know, commentary, as I've just mentioned, is, is a spontaneous thing. It's a it's a reflex thing. 
And there are many, many times when you look at commentaries. In fact, you, you don't, there's sometimes when you don't want to go back and, and listen to them because, you know, you say, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I pick that up? Uh, you know, it's, there are endless possibilities uh, when you go back over things, but you get one shot at it. That's one of the, one of the, the keys to the whole game. Uh, you realise as a commentator, you get one shot. You know, you're not like, it's very different to journalism where you can sit down and, and craft a very, very, uh, you know, a very, very uh, sort of nice sentence or a nice paragraph and, uh, you know, and you can go back over it and, and, and mould it and shape it and, and change it. Uh, commentary, you get one shot and that's it. Uh, so, yes, I would look back on that and say I was pleased with the job I did that day. Yeah, I should certainly hope so. Jim, that's been fantastic. Um, that was brilliant. It was really nice to hear from you about that commentary. It, it's certainly one of my favourites, if not my very favourite. So thank you very much for speaking to me about it. My pleasure. Okay. Many thanks to both John Ox and Jim McGrath. What a pleasure to speak to both of them. And my sincere thanks also to the sponsors of this episode, Equiad, who supply racehorse-specific accredited courses and is Ireland's only dedicated racehorse retirement and rehoming centre, giving a great life and retirement to some brilliant horses like Central House, Riven Light and Thomas Hobson and more. And their links are in the show notes, so please do go on and give them a follow. And now just a little bit of news. Um, this is the last episode of season one of Horse Racing Heroes. Ten episodes topped and tailed by Dawn Run and See the Stars. I'm pretty pleased with that. Um, I've loved making them. And I am going to make a season two, but I'm just going to take a few weeks off publishing while everyone goes into full-on Cheltenham mode. Um, and I'll use the time to make a few more episodes, get a few more under the belt, and hopefully secure a sponsor for the full series two. So get in touch if you're interested. Um, I have a few episodes already recorded, including one about Hardy Eustace, which I think people are going to love. So please do subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and follow me on Twitter if you haven't already. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And you'll get all the updates on when the new season is coming. I expect it could be around uh, April time, so... Don't forget about me, please. Um, actually, you know what, just, 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 go, just go back and listen to the old episodes again. On loop. You know, it's fine. Uh, if you have enjoyed the series, I ask that you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, or tell a friend about it, or give it a tweet, or even consider buying me a pint via the Kofi link at the bottom of the show notes. Um, and in the meantime, please don't hesitate to get in touch on Twitter. My DMs are open, whether it's with feedback or suggestions for future episodes. I'm always happy to hear them. And now, the musical commentary mashup. You're going to hear two races. Firstly, you'll hear the Irish champion stakes at Leopardstown with the great Desi Scahill getting very excited by his standards. And then you'll hear the whole of the arc commentary by Jim McGrath. Just didn't feel right to shorten it or take any out. Um, so you're going to hear the bit Jim mentioned where he misses out on set sail and calls Grand Ducal the leader. Uh, the song is called Marquee Moon by Television. I'd love to say I was being clever with the choice and some shit about see the stars and the moon, but, but that would be bullshit. But I hope when you hear them turn into the home straight, it'll become clear why I've chosen that song. So thank you very much for listening during the series, for sharing it on social media, for tweeting, messaging, all that stuff. Um... I had no idea if the series would get off the ground at all, so I'm delighted that people seem to be listening and enjoying it. Um, I'm, I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. I'll catch you in a couple of weeks. All the best. Six lengths in front. Rockhampton master craftsman Grand Ducal. They're being followed by fame and glory now who races up on the outside of See the Stars. And as they race now on the approach to the straight, set sail is the leader from Master Craftsman. Fame and Glory is now tracked by See the Stars. And Fame and Glory has raced up to join Master Craftsman, being chased by See the Stars in third. They are clear. It's Fame and Glory, Johnny Murth in front. See the Stars and Mick Cadan ranging up on the near side. And See the Stars, they come to see a star. And it's See the Stars who hits the front for Michael Cadan and Jonas. And racing up towards the finish, the undisputed champion, See the Stars, is running away. He's got a score by two and a half lengths. Wins his fifth group one. Fame and Glory second, Master Crossman third. Here the Grand Ducal.
tip, they're off and running in the arc. And away to a good start too. And on the outside, Stasolita, one of the first away, set sail, going very fast in the early stages. And up there too is Dare Me and Vision Detar. Just in behind them as see the stars. Settles in a beautiful position, about fifth on the inside. One off the rail. Going forward now, Grand Ducal to put on pace. Further back is La Boom. And then on the outside is Cavalryman trying to get across. Further back in the field is Hume Zane, followed then by Getaway. And back there is Beristam Conduit. He's right there in the center in the light jacket. Well back in the field too in the early stages. Uh, at this stage is Hot Six, followed then by Magadan. And see the stars has just lost a little bit of ground there as they head down the side. And uh, as they settle fully into stride, it's Grand Ducal is out in front by two lengths to Stasolita's got over beautifully. In third is their conduit the outside from Dare Me in the pink jacket the inside. Beristam is further back in the field, followed then in the centre by Fame and Glory. Conduit behind them, the light jacket, then see the stars, yellow and purple, right there, bang in the centre. Followed then by Getaway. Back in the field, two at this stage, out wide is Magadan, giving them a long start, preceded by the Bogri La Boom. Then Hume Zane smothered up on the fence, but set sail with six furlongs to go is four or five lengths clear of the stablemate Grand Ducal. Then about eight lengths to Stasolita, Dare Me. The outside cavalryman has got over close. Followed then by Vision Detar. And these leaders are getting right away from them as they pass the thousand metre mark five furlongs from home. Further back is Beristam, followed in the centre by Fame and Glory and a nice posse. They're followed then by, back in the field of this stage, Conduit. See the stars on the inside of runners and about six to that group that third group followed further back in the field then by hot six and the bogbury giving them a long start they race towards the turn in the arc and the leaders are a long way clear set sail and also on the outside the other one grand ducal they're about five in front now of stasolita he's getting up on the inside i'll see the stars he's got six or seven lengths to make up he'll have to be a champion stasolita races into the lead now two in front he is a champion i reckon He's got the run now in the centre. He's out after the leader. He picks up Stasolita. He powers clear. See the stars racing away. Perfection in equine form. A horse of a lifetime. He's just going to go on.